Now boarding on track number eight is train number one, the All Aboard Podcast, your twice-weekly excursion into transportation excellence, and I am your conductor, Phil Bell, Enterprise B, PB Crisp, Mr. 645, a highly trained rail enthusiast, and I am blessed to hold the E. Hunter Harrison Chair here at the Bell Institute for Advanced Railroad Studies, where there are no degrees, because the learning never ceases. And... As always, now for the third time this week, I'm happy to be back behind this, the Brunswick Green PLB microphone. I know, I just said a twice-weekly excursion to transportation excellence, but as I promised you, we are back with our next book review for Merging Lines by Richard Saunders Jr., this book, which is one of my all-time favorites, and just a little background, um... I love to read books about trains, obviously, because this is a train podcast and railroads are life. So what I want to do is share with you once a month a good book that you can read and tell you why. So why merging lines? First of all, I've always been fascinated with the business side of railroading. In fact, while it's a lot of fun to sit there and watch trains go by and say, hey, this is a GP40-2, this is an EMD E8A, this is a PA1, um, and chase heritage units and do everything. To me, it's so fulfilling when you have an understanding of what's going on behind the scenes and how what we're seeing came to be. And the railroad industry, more so than any other industry, is one where we can chronicle not only its past, but we can chronicle almost every step of the way because so many people have been fascinated with it for so long. And Richard Saunders, who is a former professor at Clemson, and just now retired, uh, I believe, in 2020, and he is Professor Maris there, gained, uh, gained a PhD from the University of Illinois, is one of those people. In fact, while he specializes in 20th century history, his real love, you can tell, is with railroading. And so not only did he write Merging Lines, but in 2003, he wrote Main Lines, which is the successor book, The Rebirth of American Railroads, 1970 to 2002, uh, The Birth of the American Railroad, 1970 to 2000, and Railroad Mergers and the Coming of Conrail, 1978. So before I get too deep into the review, I can tell you that I will be purchasing all three of those books, and you're certainly going to see a little bit from it peppered into a lot of what we do, because that era of the 1960s, the 1970s, and the 1980s, those three decades, are so pivotal for rail, but they're also a microcosm of American industry as a whole. So, let me get started here. First of all, what's so unique is that Saunders had very much a front row seat to the Merging Lines era because he was an employee for the New York Central and he worked in Niagara Falls. He discusses that extensively because he talks about how difficult and dysfunctional the Niagara Falls terminal was. That was very surprising to me because that was during the time when Al Perlman was the head of the New York Central. And if you've been listening to us, you know we're big fans of Al Perlman. Number one, because he's a great railroader. Number two, because he's a free market guy. But number three, because he made a hallmark of his leadership with the New York Central to be innovation as well as competent operation of the cut of the of the entity. But what Saunders points out is that for all of Perlman's intelligence, as much as he was known as a doctor of sick railroads, his influence from New York City 
did not filter down quite as far as we rail enthusiasts and those in the railroad press might believe. That's important because that also is a big reason why so many of the railroads of this era and to a certain extent corporations overall tend to struggle when they're either A, in trouble, or B, are trying to simply take themselves to the next level. Sure, it's one thing for the CEO to sit there in the headquarters building, meet with his senior lieutenants and so on, develop business plans, develop marketing plans, uh, address what they're hearing from customers, but to what extent can they get the employees, the rank and file at the bottom of the company or on the front lines, depending on how you look at it, to actually get the job done? And Saunders talks about a time when, while he was working there, uh, Al Perlman came during one of his famous visits to Niagara Falls. And while he was there, he noticed a boxcar had been sitting on a siding and that boxcar belonged to the Canadian National. Now, as many of you know, when a railroad, a foreign line railroad, is holding on to a car, and I should be clear, when I say foreign line, I mean a railroad other than the one who owns the particular car, they must pay a per diem charge. So for each day that your railroad has someone else's car, it's got to pay for that. Now, oftentimes, this is because it's on a customer siding and needs to be unloaded, but if you simply have it on a siding, it's sitting there, it's not doing anything, you're paying that railroad for it to be there, and you're getting nothing of it. Well, Al Perlman shows up, he sees this, and he chews out the superintendent. And afterwards, what happened? Did things get better? No. The superintendent would just hide and pretty much avoid things because he didn't want to get uh, chewed out by, by Al Perlman again, but at the same time, he either didn't know or wasn't willing to make the changes that would be necessary to improve the operation in his area. Saunders had a front row seat for this, so he saw in that instance an example of what was playing out over railroads across the country and had done so for several decades to that point. Uh, what is so interesting, though, about front line, excuse me, merging lines more so than just Saunders' uh, viewpoint there, it's that it is a true work of art because it is so iconoclastic. You see, for many years, I, as a rail enthusiast and then someone who worked in the industry, I heard what I saw in Trains Magazine, what I saw in Railfan and Railroad, what I might have read in the random book here or there, and a lot of those had the same lines going through it. Great example, the Milwaukee Road. We always look at the Milwaukee Road as being a railroad of the Hiawathas, the Little Joes, the Bipolar Electrics. This is the Milwaukee Road, a rugged carrier in the West, a Granger in the East, and those trains are moving as fast as they possibly can. I say those Hiawathas are moving as fast as they possibly can. But he points out how the Milwaukee Road and its great Pacific extension only had a couple of train freight trains running on it until the Burlington Northern merger. And while the Burlington Northern merger was expected to kill the Milwaukee Road, a lot of the new gateways that were opened up actually allowed it to continue to operate on and have a little measure of success for a few years. These are two facts that aren't really understood if you're just reading Trains Magazine and some of the more traditional press. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that because I'm trying to denigrate them. I think um, Trains has been a valuable resource and is what opened the door for so many of us to learn deeply about railroads and to open the door to find a book like Merging Lines. But I encourage you, 
when you read Trains Magazine, when you read those those issues from the 1960s and the 1970s, and you're absorbing David P. Morgan's rich, rich, rich writing style, which I got to tell you, uh, it's really what made me want to become a writer and somebody who is much more deep into reading than I ever would have otherwise been. I want you to read that, and then I want you to read some of these more iconoclastic uh, journals and texts because that way you get the full picture, and Merging Lines has certainly done that for me. Another thing that he talks about, since we're pushing on the Milwaukee Road a little bit, is the effort by Ben Heineman who was the Chicago and Northwestern's legendary CEO to sell the Chicago Northwestern Railway itself to the Milwaukee Road for next to nothing. Because at the time, he was working on diversification, building up Northwest Industries, and decided he wanted to get out of the railroad, which he ultimately would by spinning the carrier off to its employees. However, he offered it first to the Milwaukee Road and said, hey, look, I just want some stock in the combined company. Uh offers it there. Milwaukee Road uh, uh, looks at it and says, oh, I don't know, and then says no. Now imagine for a second what would have happened had the Milwaukee taken the Chicago and Northwestern and had the traffic from the combined railroads to funnel over the Pacific Extension. Then those paltry trains that Saunders talks about may very well have been not only greater in number, but greater in traffic. And then that may very well have allowed the Milwaukee to avoid bankruptcy in the 1970s and then have the capital to get into the Powder River Basin, which, by the way, was something that the Chicago Northwestern itself lacked, and that is a lot of what led to its eventual uh, buyout by pr a private equity firm, Blackstone Capital Partners, working with Donaldson, Lufkin, Jenrette, and then later on becoming part of the Union Pacific because it needed additional capital in order to do that, which it wasn't able to do on its own. But a combined Northwestern Milwaukee road probably could have. So that certainly opened my eyes to think about this. Uh, moving on a little bit, another thing I really appreciated about the book was just the overall machinations of the railroads, large and small, and he covers it on a regional basis. So you're not just talking about, hey, a random railroad here, a random railroad there. You're learning about what was going on in the Southeast. You're learning about what's going on in New England and all the factors that led into it. And I particularly loved how he took a great focus on the people themselves. This wasn't just saying, oh, well, the Norfolk and Western did this or the Union Pacific did that. It was Jack Fishwick at the NNW, and you got an idea of what Jack Fishwick might have been like. You got an idea of how Stuart Saunders was looking at the world and looking at his company. And when you combine that with a lot of the other literature that's out there, such as H. Roger Grant's Erie Lackawanna, Death of American Railroad, or The Wreck of the Penn Central, uh, Fallen Colossus, then you get to get a really full picture of what it was like, which is almost as good as you can get without actually being there in person. Now, where he goes into great depth toward the end of the book is discussing Penn Central. And I got to tell you, Penn Central, because it was such a colossal failure and such a landmark event in railroading, is something that no single book can cover in great depth. But between merging lines, uh, Wreck of the Penn Central, 
fallen colossus and no way to run a railroad again all together this is a great 360 to 360 degree view of what it is like and what the Penn Central merger really did, what led up to it, and then, of course, how things fell apart so quickly. I was just so struck by the vision that he paints of the uh, Penn Central executives waiting at the New York Federal Reserve because that was the day when they were supposed to receive loan guarantees from the federal government, specifically through the U.S. Navy, that would have been followed by additional funding provided by Congress. But as Richard Nixon, President Nixon, saw, he wasn't going to be able to get that funding bill through Congress because of Congressman Wright Patman, who was staunch in his opposition to providing a bailout to Penn Central. So while the president had the ability through the Defense Production Act, which you've heard a lot over recent years uh, due to COVID-19, while he had the ability to provide loan guarantees, which could have kept Penn Central afloat for an indeterminate amount of time, although history has told us that it would not have been very long had that been done, he ultimately decided he would not do that. And so Penn Central, of course, ended up going bankrupt. But you really do feel, as you read the book, the, the desolation, the desperation, and the fact that you had not two, but three great enterprises come to an end that one day. But it also gives the beginning of the hope that would come for the industry in the per, in the post-Penn Central era. Now, it doesn't cover that. It, it ends there. But you start to see the green shoots, or should I say jade green shoots, or maybe even Brunswick green shoots, that were coming out and so setting the stage for what will be his some of his future books, where we talk about Conrail, where he talks about other uh, changes and the resurgence that ultimately came to the industry in the 1980s. Uh, beyond all that, I did like also that he included a pretty good amount of financial data from the 1960s. And that's also intriguing because, and I know there's some of you out there that say, I don't want to look at spreadsheets or talk about return on equity or anything like that. But what you'll find kind of interesting is what railroads actually were doing well and which ones were doing poorly. In particular, I was struck by the Atlantic Coastline and the Seaboard Airline. Now, most of us believe and understand, and in many cases it was true, that the Atlantic Coastline was the strong, powerful railroad. And obviously that's why it became the dominant force in the Seaboard Coastline. But in the data that he provides, you actually see how the Seaboard Airline, the so-called also ran, was generating better returns in the ACL. So that shows us there's a lot more to see and a lot more to learn about the history of our favorite railroads and to understand the people who are involved, which is how things came about, not simply dispassionate operations that led from one thing to another. So that really gave me a new perspective on so many of the rail executives and so many of the railroads themselves. I came out of this uh, having learned a lot, and I hope you will go ahead and buy it too. We'll put in the description some links to uh, places where you can purchase it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and so on. Uh, we will be back with you uh, next month, and let's get that date because we like to do the first Thursday 
of every month. And in that instance, it will be March 7th for our next book review. Uh, I haven't quite decided which book that's going to be yet, but I can promise you that it will be something that you are very interested in. I want you to stay tuned here. And finally, one more thing before we sign off. Uh, This Saturday and Sunday, and that is the 3rd and the 4th of February, we will be at the Great Scale Model Train Show in Timonium. Now, last year, apparently I almost got shot at this train show, so you know it's going to be definitely something. I'm going to make you a promise. I have no plans to get shot because if I did, who would do the book reviews or talk to you about trains? I don't know. Uh, But it is a great event, a good opportunity to meet fellow rail fans in addition to buying some great Railroadiana from us here at All Things Trains. And remember, when you do buy it, not only do you help enhance your collection, and not only do you help to um, spread the message about what is so neat about railroading, but also you get to help me keep this on the air because that's so critical that we have your support to stay on. And finally, before I go for real, please like, share, and subscribe. If you do those things, it'll let the folks at YouTube, Rumble, Spotify, uh, iHeart, and all the other great places, Apple Podcasts, all the great places we are, uh, know that you appreciate this content. And so that way they will elevate it and more people will be able to enjoy it. So we will see you down the main line. We will see you next Monday. That's Money Day with our next uh, podcast. We talk about part two of Auto Train. Have a great day. And thanks again for choosing all things trains for your railroad needs and news.